What a week ahead for us as we come into what some people call Passion Week, some people call it Holy Week, since about the 4th century. So this is not something that we created on our own to kind of create an entire week of buzz, but it's actually been since the 4th century that we can document and find the church calling this week a week of holiness. And and now why is that? Does that mean every other week is unholy, that this is a sacred week, but every other week is secular week and and that we just got to kind of get holy here for for a short, brief moment and then we can kind of go back to life as normal? Not at all. The uniqueness of this week is not found in making it sacred, but in all the events that transpire in this week. And let me just kind of kind of paint a picture for you. This is so important in the scriptures that when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel narratives, the, 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 the historical books that talk about the life of Christ, that just in the gospel of Matthew alone, one-third of the gospel of Matthew is devoted to the last and final week of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. The culmination of his ministry is one-third of the gospel of Matthew. The other two-thirds is dedicated to 33 years of Jesus' life and ministry. And most of that is actually only to the last three years. And so you can see this great shift, this great emphasis on everything that happens in the last week. And what we've tried to do as a church, as we constantly are trying to do, is how can we get your family, get you as a family, as a mother, as a father, or as as a teenager, how can we get your family as a place of sacred worship? And so one of the things we've done is we, I I look like I'm peddling a bunch of stuff up here today, but I'm really not. This is just an opportunity. We try to make these opportunities like the first of the year. We typically take off that first Sunday of the year when we're, hey, dedicate this to family worship. We want to encourage you all week long as a family to have a time of family worship, whether if you're in the student ministry or you have somebody in your family that's in the, in, uh, the student ministry, there's a guide here that you can take and work with your students through or they can work through on their own. If you have uh, grade school children or, pre, uh, 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 or preschool children, here's a guide for that. So again, a couple of different guides. And then if you don't have any kids at home or you're newlyweds or you're not married or whatever, here's an entire list of every scripture, especially as it pertains in Matthew, as kind of that uh, 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 that backbone to it all, but every scripture outlining the life of Christ. All this is kind of available to you out in the gallery area. So on your way out, avail yourself to it. Grab it, take it. There's one per family at least. And so take that, make your home a sanctuary this week. Make it a holy week in your family and celebrate this time. Now next week at this time, Do not come at the normal time, all right? You'll either be early, really early, or you'll be really late, okay? Uh, So we've got three different times. We're changing everything up next Sunday. And next Sunday at 8 o'clock or 10, 10, excuse me, would you put them up there? I don't even remember what times they are. Maybe they'll go, there they are. All right, 8, 9, 30, and 11. I'm just going to be here and be there the whole time. So, uh, but choose one of those times that you're going to worship in and, and find that place of service and serve in one. If you're flexible with your time, I would encourage you maybe the 8 o'clock or the 11 o'clock because we're really believing that the 930 is going to be chock-a-block full. So just kind of be thinking about that. But hey, listen, and also think about Friday night. Friday night being at 6 o'clock, we're all going to come together, one worship service, one church under one roof. We're all going to be in here, grade school and up, and we're going to celebrate and reflect on Good Friday.
in all that Christ did and all Christ that gave on that night. We're going to have communion, fellow, or Lord's Supper, and we're going to have that time together. And I would hope and pray that that would just set the tone for the entire week. And we've been talking about this re-Jesus. Well, that night we're going to talk about the rejected Jesus and how he was rejected in multiple ways from multiple people. Now, since you're my peeps, I'm going to give you a heads up on next Sunday. Next Sunday is not going to be the traditional facts and, and figures on the resurrection of Christ, okay? I feel like God's leading us into a new series of messages. It's called Keep Dancing. It's going to be, and I know if you're Baptist background, you don't dance, but hey, just think about it for, for a series of messages. We're going to be going through the book of Philippians, and we're going to be talking about just the joy that comes as a residual effect of the resurrection, and you'll, I'm going to connect it all next together next week. I'm going to kind of kick it off next week. So if you've got somebody who has been sucker punched in life, who right now you feel like they are under a weight or maybe you're that person under a weight that you just can't bear it up under it any longer, then this is going to be the series for you. How do I keep moving? How do I keep joy in my life? How do I find joy and continue in joy in my life even when circumstances are not making it so easy? In fact, we get these prayer cards in every week, and I can't say enough. We're not asking you to just fill out more stuff because we need more stuff to read and more stuff to do. We really do take these cards important. We do pray over every single one of them, sometimes multiple times in the week. We have stopped and cried over them. We have stopped in our tracks and can't move forward because of some of them. Here's just some that that have come in this past month. And just these are real-life issues. This, This is just stuff that's just come in this past month. Real life issues that are hurting our people, that are sucker punching our people, that you're going through and that we're praying through. And we're praying that God will sustain you through that. I mean, there's so many on there and there's more. Lotus lost his job and his spouse all in the same week. That's in our fellowship. I mean, you talk about cracking under the pressure. You talk about wanting to give up. You talk about losing your joy. You know, that's real. That's real life. You talk about what's happening today. In the nation of Egypt, two church bombings, 25 people, I heard just before coming in, 25 people were killed through bombings. I look at all this and I go, where does this darkness come from? Where does this brokenness come from? Why do we have all of this out there? And I go, there's no clear answer. Why is there the injustice? Why is there the brokenness? Why is there the darkness? Why do I feel like I'm getting sucker punched? Why is that out there? And here's it, you know, here's just a reality check for us. This world is not fair. Now, there's sometimes, and I'm going to talk about it in a moment, where life not being fair is a good thing. But in, in some of these dishing out of trials and tribulations, it's just like sometimes you feel like it's raining and pouring on you all at the same time. And how is it that this injustice is out there? Let me just give you some real facts on life, okay? I'm going to give it to you in real bullet point fashion really quick, so listen very quickly. Here's number one bullet point, darkness. Where is this darkness? What is this darkness? Darkness has a name. It's called sin. There's a darkness in this world, and whether it is a direct effect because of sin or it is a residual effect of maybe happening over a period of time. This all points back to the darkness of this world. It all points back to sin. You go and you can talk about, uh, you know, pedophiles and you can talk about rapists. You can talk about murders. You go, oh, then that's the dark of the dark. That's right. It's dark. 
But what about the person who chooses to fabricate the truth? Chooses to just, this tax time, right? Just stretch out those, that, 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 that tax uh, claim, you know? Uh, fabricating a lie. Listen, what we do then is we create darkness ourselves. What about the person who's living in denial? Who's, who's living in denial of, of, hey, I'm not so broken, and hey, I'm not as bad as the other guy, or, or hey, at least my good outweighs my bad. You know, they're living in denial, but there's darkness inside of them. What about the person who, who, who creates darkness or, or who, who perpetuates darkness from one generation to the next, from, from their kids into the next generation? See, the reality is, is that darkness is a part of our world, and it's there because sin entered into the world. And you can go back to Adam and Eve and you can look at them and you can find where darkness entered in, in, into them. And, and, and you know what? God says that he, when he created hell, he did not create it for people, but he created it for the darkness and the demons of this world. However, if we reject him, we continue to live in darkness. We live in the effects of that. Matthew says it like this in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. It says, the, son of, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in a place that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. None of us like to talk about that. We like to talk about pearly gates and streets of gold and mansions in heaven. But the darkness goes there. Sin has an effect on us. If sin is darkness, then it has an effect on us, and that is alienation. There's a, there's a natural thing that happens whenever darkness is there, sin is there, we become alienated. Now, what is this alienation part? Again, if you study the scriptures at any length of time, you can see in Isaiah 52, 59, verse 2, it says, your sinful acts have alienated you from your God. Have alienated. Now, cause and effect. Y'all have gone to school, right? You, 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 you studied physics. You, you've understood Aristotle and how he talked about cause and effect. You know, you do this and it gives you this effect. Well, the same is true. This is not only Aristotle creating this or believing this. This is not just something our physics teacher talks about. This is something that the scripture points to. The cause, sinful acts, what's the effect? Alienated from God. Alienated from God. Where, what does this go on to say? Your sins have caused him to reject you and not listen to your prayers. Ever feel like your prayers are going nowhere? Ever feel like you just can't get through to God? You've tried that and so you've given up on God? Maybe you don't give up on God. Maybe look deeper at your own soul. You know, where have I created alienation between God and I? Because number three is alienation has results and the result is death. I go back to Adam and Eve beginning of time. He said, today, if you eat of this tree, of this tree, today you will surely die. He tells them you're going to die. Now they ate of the tree and you know the story. They keep living. What died? And then there was something spiritually that died in them, but also they physically began to die. God never intended our bodies to die, but whenever sin enters in, sin begins to tear down our life. And in Romans chapter three, verse 23, it makes it very clear that the wages of sin is death. Number four is where I've gone to the deep, dark pit of despair with those right there, right? But here's where the hope enters in. The sin has a solution. It's paid and not pardoned. Now, I want to really distinguish between the two. 
Because now here's where Jesus enters into the scene. Here's where Jesus enters into the narrative of your life and my life. Here's where Jesus enters into the story. And that is, is that Jesus came and he paid for our sins. He didn't pardon. Please understand and appreciate the difference. Pardoning or commuting somebody's sentence doesn't erase the wrong, doesn't fix the problem, doesn't pay the price for the brokenness that has happened. Now, I'm not picking on Obama when I say this because every president, for as long as I've ever uh, understood civics, has always done one thing at the end of their presidency. And Obama did the same thing that, that Bush did, the Bushes did, the Clintons did, and, and, and he followed right into it. On the last day in office, he commutes or pardons the, the sentence of 64 different people. I got on the Department of Justice website and looked at them. Some of those were meth amphetamines uh, abuse. Some of those were, 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 were distribution of different kinds of hard drugs. And I'm like, oh, and how do you pardon that? How do you just kind of say it's okay? There's still hurt people over here. There's still pain over here. There's still hurt over here. And again, I'm not trying to get political here for a moment because I want to push that to the side and I want to say, listen, what Jesus did on the cross wasn't pardoned us, didn't commute us. What he did is he paid the price. He took on his shoulders He took on his soul, the pain, the sin, the brokenness, the injustice that we just spoke of, all of that. He took all of that on him and he paid it for us, for you and for me. That's why Jesus is no small figure in time that he owes us and that we kind of tip our hat to him and we kind of give some kind of lip service loyalty. Listen, this is the one who bore it all. And paid it all. There should be something that stirs inside of us of loyalty and commitment. And absolutely, God, if you gave all that for me to pay my debt, what can I not give you? Number five fact on life is that sin's payment is God's grace and love in action. Sin's payment... Jesus dying on the cross is where we're literally seeing God put on flesh, dwell among man, die on a cross for us. And that is love and grace in action. And there's no better verse that I can think of than in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when it tells us that he shows his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. I'm going to read about 27 different verses today. So if you're jotting them down, jot that one down for sure. Because we need to dwell on the fact that while we were still broken, while we were still in sin, it was Jesus who was doing all the work to make a way to bridge us back to God. Because if you look at this series of messages, we've talked a lot about Jesus, read Jesus series, that's kind of a good thing, okay? But we've talked about him as the redeemer, reconciler, as reclaimer, as repurposer, as the one who we realign our lives to. That's what we've been talking about today. I want to talk about Jesus as the restorer. He's the one who brings us back to God. Again, you just read the verse. Now, I want you to see again what what we read earlier in Isaiah 59 verse 2. And don't miss this. He says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. The other translation, it's alienated you. It's separated you. Now, that's a dark verse. That's a dingy verse. That's an unhappy verse 
feel-good verse. It's a non-feel-good verse. I don't like that verse. But just because it's truth and I don't like it doesn't change the fact that it's still truth. I may not have to like it, but here's the beauty of it. There's another verse that follows this. It's in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It's where we're going to focus our attention today. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sin. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What once was separated because of sin and brokenness and shame and injustice and all that broken vial of our society is brought back together because of what one man did on a cross. And that's the restorer Jesus. He restores the relationship. Sin separates Jesus restores. Let's look at this verse in its totality. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, or scroll down on your screens. And let's look at verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous. Now notice he said once for sins. Jesus didn't have to keep going to the cross. He did everything on one time to the cross. All sin of all humanity of all time was taken care of on that one day on the cross. Can you imagine the weight that he bore on that cross? He is the righteous for the unrighteous. I'll let you fill in the blank on who the unrighteous is. If you don't know yet, draw a picture of yourself by that. Uh, That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. How does Jesus restore me? And it's the most basic fundamental today. I want to I bring the cookies to the bottom shelf, to the actual floor that everybody, young or old, uh, educated or uneducated, cannot miss this, that how Jesus restores us. And he restores us, first of all, by being the suffering Jesus. He suffered once. Now, notice he didn't just say he died. This was a grueling, inhumane form of punishment and death that Jesus went under. Christ also suffered once for sin. I mentioned last week, you know, why didn't God just walk up to the edge of creation and put his toes over the edge and go, you know what? They're a heap of mess. Delete. I mean, he could have. It would totally make sense. Just delete, delete, delete. Get rid of that. But he didn't. He steps up to the edge of humanity, uh, edge of time, and he looks down into our souls. He says, listen, I created them. I love them. I want them. I want them to worship. I want them to gather. I want to be with them. I want them with me and us together. And that was the holy God of the universe saying that. Don't miss the the magnitude of this because some people want to dumb down sin Because why? They've dumbed down God. We dumb down sin and we dumb down God and we make it okay. We kind of make it this kind of, well, we're all fallen. Hey, don't judge me and I won't judge you. And hey, you know, uh, we all mess up. After all, we're all human. We kind of use those little phrases. We dumb down sin because we've dumbed down God. John Piper says this, sin is not small. Because it is not against a small sovereign. Now, if you have a little God, your little sins don't mount to much. But if you understand the magnitude of God, 
I should understand the magnitude of my sin. The seriousness of an assault rises with the dignity of the one insulted. I want us to not miss the fact that Jesus Christ and God the Father looked down on humanity. He looked down on brokenness. He looked down on sin. He looked down on it. And He chose of His own volition to save and not delete, to redeem and not destroy. He chose. He didn't have to choose us. And if you look at the angelic host... He did not choose to redeem them. Compare the two. They fell. They fell first. And this is what the Scripture says about them. Again, in Peter's writings, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but He cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness, there's the darkness metaphor again, to be kept until the judgment. See, God did not redeem fallen angels the third of the angels who fell with Satan. He did not redeem them, but he chose you and I. There's something that in, inside of us should, should awaken inside of us that, God, you didn't have to. You could have deleted. You could have just put us with the angels and lumped us right in. But no, you chose to suffer for me. There's an injustice in that. Thank God that God's not fair. Let me, let me read to you a, a Puritan prayer. It says, Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. Notice the dichotomy of this. Cast off that I might be brought in. Trodden down that, as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst that I might be attain heaven's best. Stripped that I might be clothed. Wounded that I might be healed. A thirst that I might drink. Tormented that I might be comforted. Made ashamed that I might inherit glory. Entered darkness that I might have eternal life, eternal light. God isn't fair. And thank God that He's not fair. He took the suffering that was due each and every one of us. But not only that, you also need to see the substitution Jesus. That Jesus Christ stood in our place. He was the just and he died for the unjust. The, the righteous for the unrighteous. The whole for the Broken, the, 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 the put together for the falling apart. That, that is the picture here that Jesus stood in our place. Wayne Grudem in his uh, systematic theology book talks about the two motivating factors that sent Christ to the cross. And he says it was love and justice. Love. We know John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's a beautiful verse. We all memorized it as a child growing up. That's that's the one of the motivations of why Jesus went to the cross. But there was also justice. He had to go. Because a price had to be paid. Because it couldn't just be pardoned. It couldn't be just wiped away. 
And that's why I have a hard time whenever I hear of religions who'll say, say, if you'll just go say 15 Hail Marys, or, and that's not throwing a football, that's actually a prayer. If you'll, if, you'll, if, you'll, if, you'll, if you'll go and you'll do 40 hours of community service, if you'll get baptized on, uh, on, uh, on Palm Sunday, if you'll, if, you'll, uh, if you'll come on Good Friday and take communion, if you'll shake the preacher's hand on Easter and get your picture made with him, then maybe all of that will all line up and, and, and then God and the heavens will all like you. No, it was Jesus standing in my place, taking my shame and putting it on him. Here's just a few verses. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, but he, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. See, he, he took my sin punishment. He took my iniquities that she crushed me and it crushed him. Here's another one, Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. Christ took our infirmities. He bore our diseases. And there's so many other in Scripture, I can't even list them all. I'm not going to read them all, but here's just a list of them. Isaiah 53, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore the sin of many. Paul talks about how he came to be sin, that we might be the righteousness of Christ, that we might be the righteousness of God. He became us broken and sinful so that we might become him whole and complete. We've got to understand that he traded places with us in a place that he should not have gone. We need to let that sink deep into our soul. I heard the story of a mother and a young daughter out in the flower bed, late spring, early summer, in the front yard. They were weeding the, the weeds. Uh, they were planting new flowers. They were having a good mother-daughter kind of time. And mother reaches her hand down to grab some weeds to pull them up and finds a, a bee, and a bee stings her. And she shakes it off and she tries to keep her language as PG-13 as she can as she's uh, shaking off the sting of, of, that, of, that, of that bee. And, and she, the daughter's alarmed because mom's hurt. And what's wrong? Well, we got stung by a bee. You know, now the daughter starts crying. The daughter starts crying. And the mother's the one who got stung. And she didn't know whether to run in the house and run away from the bee or run to mother because mother was her security. So she ends up running to her mother and she says, no, 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 you're going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Because you see, and she pointed into her hand as she began to pick the, 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 the sting of the stinger of the bee. She says, see there, the, the bee has stung me. The bee can't sting you. That's exactly what Jesus did. He took the sting of death, the sting of sin. I want you to read a, ver- a couple of verses out loud with me. First Corinthians chapter 15, after the resurrection has been declared and celebrated, sing, uh, don't sing it with me, read it with me. <laughs> death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. I love that statement. The sting of death is sin. Everything I've been talking about. The darkness of this world leads to alienation. Alienation leads to death. It's sin. It's brokenness. 
And then he goes on, he says, the, the power of sin is the law. Basically, we look at the law and the law shows us what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. And man, we can never measure up to the law. We can never get it right. We can never get all of our ducks in a row. We can never get our life just in perfect order. And what happens is we realize we're broken and that, that, that something's going to have to fix this brokenness, this separation, this alienation. And the answer is Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one more thing about Jesus and how he restores us. It's not only through his suffering. It's not only through his stepping into our place and substituting himself in our place, but he becomes the Savior Jesus. And you've got to know him there too. Because everything that I've set up until this point really comes down to this last phrase so that he might bring us to God. Quick lesson in the Greek language. In the very first part of this is that, that he. It's a Greek word, henna. This word henna is used throughout the New Testament. It's very common in the Greek language. And what they would do is they would give it a statement building up to a climactic statement saying this is why everything that I've said up until this point matters. It's for this purpose. It's for this reason that Jesus suffered once for sin. It's for this reason that Jesus was the just for the unjust. It's for this reason that he might bring us to God. That's why. What was once alienated, what was once broken, what was once separated, what was once fragmented, he brings us to God. He becomes, as it says in Romans chapter 3, he says, he becomes the propitiation, that's the payment for. It was his blood that paid the price to bring, to build the bridge that brought us back together to connect with God. That should change everything. The way I live, the way I think about living, whenever I look at all that he did and all that he gave and all that he endured, all that, all that, all that, all that, all that for me. For me, for you, and you and you. Come to the moments like this and I just, I just this week was thinking, you know what? I just need to do it. I don't always do it. I need to do it today. How is it that if Jesus came in order that he might bring us to God, he died, he suffered, in order that he might bring us to God, that I want to make it as, as easy as ABC of what it means to come into a relationship with Jesus. Here they are. A, first of all, we need to admit that we absolutely, positively need a Savior. Now, I'm going to make a bold general statement across the room, not trying to judge anybody, but just I, I've been doing this long enough that there's a lot of people in this room right now who really don't think that they need Jesus. They, they may never say it. They'll never say it to a preacher for sure. They'll never say it to their family. But they're living pretty high and pretty confident and pretty, pretty able-bodied people themselves. And they really, really don't need Jesus. Jesus is for the broken, but I'm not broken, so thank you very much. I'm here because. Fill in the blank. No? You know, here's, here's, the, here's the fact. Until we come to the end of ourselves... 
until we reach the end of ourselves, we will never need Jesus. But there will come a point in your time, in your life, where you'll have a crossroads, and it may be a day or it may be a season, but you will come to a crossroads, and it may even be today, where you will have to answer the question, am I going to follow Jesus or am I not? Do I really need any help out there? Do I, am I really broken that much? But see, realizing this, as Jesus said, that blessed are the poor in spirit. See, I have to become bankrupt in my spirit before I can ever really know the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. But as long as I'm pretty self-sufficient, self-made, I won't need Jesus and you'll go on living your life without him. So first of all, you've got to reach the end of yourself and admit that I need a savior. Number two, you've got to kind of get that letter B in there and that's the believe. You've got to believe that Jesus is the only answer. Now, you may go, hey, you know, I'm, I'm pretty open-minded. I'm pretty tolerant. I think there's a lot of religions out there, and all the roads going to lead to heaven. Listen, just follow that philosophy all the way to the end. There's not a major religion in the world who will tell you all roads lead to heaven. You talk to a Muslim, you talk to a Jew, you talk to, you talk to anybody. They will not tell you that all roads lead to heaven. Neither will Christianity, neither will Jesus tell you that all roads lead to heaven. So you're going to have to choose a road at some point in your life. And you may be the me road, and you're going to be wherever you take you. But the reality is, is that I, I think if you're going to enter into this relationship with God, that you're going to have to believe that Jesus is the only way. Now, I want to do something. I want to, uh, there's three verses I want us to read, and I want to read them in sections, okay? So I'm going to take this section, I'm going to give you a verse, and I'm going to give this section a verse, and this section a verse. So we're going to start with this section, and that includes the penalty box or the bullpen or whatever you want to call this section over here. This is kind of what, I don't know if the architect was thinking when he did it. Section. All right, so th- this section, we're going to read the first verse. Let's just read it all out, out loud together. Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For through him, we both have access to the Father by the Spirit. Wow. Who were once far away, once removed, once alienated, once separated, we are brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay? This section right here. Can't get any clearer than this verse, okay? First Timothy, absolutely one of my favorites. There we go. Let's read it together. For there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God in humanity. The man. One. Not two, not three, not pick your choice, not make your own medley, not make your own cocktail of gods. There is one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus. He's the only one who can reconcile us. All right, this section right here, let's do it. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way. Admit, I need a Savior. Believe that Jesus is the only answer. And number three, or letter C, if you will, is confess. Confess your sins to Jesus. Confess your brokenness. Confess your injustice. Confess what alienated you from God. You're now confessing that to God. Now, let me say to those who are going to be baptized, if right now you're going to be baptized, if you'll do this, if you'll go through that door right there, we're going to get ready for your 
public confession, you've already confessed Christ. This is not where you get saved, okay? It's nothing we can do. Jesus did it all. But these are the ones that are going to declare before you and others that they have confessed their faith in Christ. Now, what's cool about this is the confession means something more than just with your lips. You don't just say something. There's not a rote prayer. There's not a magic seance that we say and then you become. No, it's when you in your heart with your own mouth and your own heart, you say, God, I need you. God, I can't do this without you. Jesus, I need you. For with the heart one believes and is justified that's made right. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Another one, one of my favorites is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess with our mouth, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us, to make us right, to get us on the right track. That's what Jesus does. That's the kind of life that we enter into. You know, as you look at these 27, 28 verses that we read today, all of them from Old and New Testament. I kind of want to land on one, one in particular. When you look at Paul, who wrote 13 of the books of the New Testament, and you say, okay, Paul, how did you live your life? Because he's a pretty wrecked person. He's pretty messed up. He's killing people. He, he was uh, pretty vigilant, zealot in his own faith there for a while. But this is his motto. In Acts 24, verse 16, and... Uh, This is what it says. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. Now, Gary Chapman calls this the mental health verse of the Bible. I call it the spiritual health verse of the Bible. Having a clear conscience with God, vertical, and with man, horizontal. Where I can live this life free of the load of shame and guilt free of the load that I'm separated from God or I'm separated from other people, that I live a clear conscience before God and man. My invitation to you is simple. A, B, C. Admit that you need a Savior. Come to the end of yourself. Believe that Jesus is the only answer to your life's greatest problems and issues and future and everything else in between. And then confess. Declare with your heart, your soul, your mind, your life, and then live with that clear conscience before God and man. Would you bow your heads with me? There's going to be some today who are going to declare, along with those who are in our first gathering, that they've made this decision to follow Christ. And you might need to do the same. You might be right there, right here and now. And I want to challenge you. Don't stay in your seat. I'm going to challenge you to do something a little radical. I want to challenge you to go home wet. Get up from your seat in a moment when you see me walk off this stage and you follow me out the same door I go out and you can go and we can declare your faith today out loud in front of God and everyone that you're a follower of Jesus. Father, you know everyone in this room, the conditions of our hearts, and Lord, whether you are the foundation, the cornerstone of our life, the Savior of our life, and Lord, if you're not, I would pray that today, today, anybody who doesn't know you, hasn't experienced you, 
would come to know you and give themselves fully and completely to you. Lord, we commit this time now in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand together and sing with us.